everybody, this is Keach Rainwater with the Designated Drummer Podcast, and I have with me Jimmy Nichols. Hey, Jimmy man. Nichols. Great to see you, Keach. <laughs> Some people don't know who Jimmy Nichols is because he's you're really kind of a behind-the-scenes kind of guy, session I'm player. I'm a fly under the radar kind of guy. Yeah, right. But if you've ever seen a Faith Hill show or ever read any credits on a Nashville record, Jimmy Nichols, you'll see his name all over the place. Yeah, that's kind of a fluke, but we'll talk he, about that. He <laughs> is like the most amazing piano player I've ever heard. I mean, like you're like Liberace status. I don't know if that's is that a bad thing to say to a piano. No, player? no. A, there's a funny backstory to that. And, uh, uh, but I'm honored. Thank you. Yeah, man. I mean, you know, you've been doing Lone Star sessions forever. Oh. Uh, and I've always loved it when I have to tell you my favorite moments uh, is when we're uh, doing a take. You know, Dan Huff's producing, and we're do a take, and you're fixing to do another take, and you stop in between the songs, and you start just like you'll just start playing this cool stuff like noodling what we call it like just yeah, jazz noodling, noodling. N- your yeah, noodles are i live for those i mean i live <laughs> for those moments when in between takes when we're doing a take and it's all serious and it sounds like a nashville record it sounds like a lone star record mm-hmm. then all of a sudden we'll just break for a second and you'll sort of warm up your fingers and go like and i was just like whoa what was that you know it's funny man uh i once talked to uh one of our great heroes vinnie kaliuta Vinny's teachers told him that the greatest players never stop playing. And if you've ever been around Vinny, Vinny never stops playing. Right. In between, he's constantly playing and noodling. Oh, I see what you mean. And, yeah, okay. you know, it's funny that, uh, well, first of all, I never put myself up. Even though Vinny and I are close friends, I never put myself up musically on the level. Oh, you totally of, could. Of Vinny. You, you no, are. You're Vinny status. Yeah, but Vinny, yeah, but Vinny, <laughs> Vinny can read, and Vinny, can, Vinny is the, one of the few guys that ever sight read the black page. So I've heard so that story. Vinny's, Vinny's sushi? A, huh? The sushi story? No, this is another story. Oh. You know, Zappa, uh, Zappa wrote this thing, and they call it the black page. And what it is, is it's a, it's a song that he did where there are so many drum notes written out that the page literally looks black there's no white oh. space it's all black it's and he all sight read it he's he the only the... guy that ever sight read the black page every <laughs> other person had to sit there and study it he got it he got that's how we got the zappa gig that is so crazy. but you know i and i don't read music so that's he's you don't one. read music no, i don't read music so we'll get into that too. wow but anyway know you know but my thing is I, I i when i sit down there's a couple things the piano is a very unique instrument in that I'm the only guy, two things. I'm the only guy that walks into a recording session, think about this, okay. who doesn't play his own instrument every every time I walk in. Okay. Remember, oh, you that's bring true, your drum. Because you know you can't bring in a big I can't bring a grand, grand piano, piano right? Yeah. So I have to play what's there. Yeah. I'm the only guy. Guitar players got their own guitar. Bass players, yeah. everybody brings yeah. their own gear. Keyboard player, the only guy that has to use what's there. And that yeah. means that the throw of the keys, the velocity, the damper pedal noise, the response, the voice, everything about the piano is different. But see, the client wants it to sound like Jimmy. Right. So okay. I have to walk in and voice the piano to my ear and find out what I need to do as a player to make it sound that way. Okay, I see what you're saying. I can't yeah. just sit down and just assume that it's going to play at a certain velocity. Well, I never knew this. That, that I just learned something. All pianos are slightly different. They're in slightly? the weight of the keys, the yeah. It's not even slightly. I would have thought they it's were the same. Not at all. Wow. They're they're huge differences. Like from a Baldwin to a Steinway to a Yamaha, and even a Yamaha to a Yamaha. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite tracking places is Reba's place, Starstruck. Yeah, right. She's got two grand pianos that the guy that designed the room and helped build the room, Robert De La Garza, he was missioned 
with the job of flying to L.A., meeting the Yamaha boat from Japan, walking onto the boat and handpicking two pianos that were the closest sounding pianos to each other. And those are the pianos uh, that they brought. Before anybody got a before chance Before anybody to, even got a chance yeah, to check them I out. See. And they bought those and brought them to Nashville. Even those two pianos are different. And they are about as close as you could get. But you sit down and you play them and they're they're yeah. just a little different. So yeah, you know, so part of that thing that I do is I'm just kind of getting myself acquainted to the piano because I've only got minutes before yeah. a session to walk in and say, hey, how you doing, piano? You know, we're going to be together for a day or an yeah. hour or two hours or three hours. Let's see what That's you true, got. Yeah. You know? So even the engineer has worked on that desk probably many, many, many times. Sure. So even the engineer. But even, even he he's has his... no idea yeah. how my playing is going to affect the dynamics of the piano. Yeah. I can tell you this, and I, I'm not saying it in a bragging way, but I've been very blessed that I've had a lot of engineers say, I'll sit down and play and stuff, and then they'll go, man, that piano's never sounded that good. And, and, and I'm only saying it because they say it. I'm yeah, not saying right. it because I'm trying to... I believe it. I totally believe it. But I don't know what that is because uh, I don't know why I do what I do. There's but some I kind of magic it. that happens when you touch those keys. Something happens. Like you're, you're Jimmy Nichols when you walk in. You're, you know, you're like, hey, how's it going? You know, and then all of a sudden you sit down and you're just a different person. Well, I'll tell piano. you a story about how I started because I know that's part of what you asked. Definitely, yeah. And that story will explain it. Yes. Okay. So, so when you we'll, we'll go back to when you were young, yeah. you uh, were at some point. Was there ever an epiphany? Was there like this moment where you were introduced to the piano, and all of a sudden you were like, "Okay, wow, I this is me. I I want to do this." Okay. So it's time for that story. So let me tell you the story. Definitely. All right. Um, my father was a very skilled piano player. You can see photos of him. Um, Back on well, that we are in wall. Jimmy Nichols' studio, by the way. We're here in his basement studio. You'll, you'll have to maybe check it out for you. Yeah. But on that back wall is a, a great photo of my father, who was an incredible pianist. Uh-huh. Uh, he was skilled and schooled and all this jazz, jazz guy, big-time jazz guy. And when he was a, a player after the war with Mussolini and all that stuff, Italians couldn't get work. He lived up in in Massachusetts, okay. upstate right. New York, and uh, he got out of the uh, the band, or got out of the army and, and uh, was trying to get work. And they wouldn't hire Joey Gennetti because of Gennetti. They wouldn't hire mm-hmm. Italians. So now that's his your actual real name, name is Gennetti. Right? Gennetti is my actual last name. You just yeah. Jimmy Nichols. Jim, Jimmy Gennetti. Yeah. So, but his full name is Joseph Nichols Gennetti. I see. So he started going by Joey Nichols. Because he figured then people wouldn't know he was Italian, even though he yeah. looked Italian. Well, he started working and got work and became very well known. And uh, he was working with a band called the Park Avenue Jesters and uh, the Vagabonds for a little while, which was a pretty big band back now then. Now, what year would this have been? This would have been the, the 40s and 50s. Yeah, yeah, okay. 48, 49. I've got union contracts that my dad had from oh touring God, around well. and stuff. It's a trip. And... Um, he was going through upstate New uh, Ohio, actually, uh, Sandusky area, Cleveland and stuff, and he met my mom and fell madly in love with my mom and said, you know what, enough of this show business thing. I, I want to have a family band. I want to get married. I'm going to marry this woman. We're going to shoot out kids, and I'm going to have a family band. You know, <laughs> Typical Italian, you know. And so uh, he stayed married in the 50s and then had three boys. And then a girl, and then me, and then three girls. So we had eight wow, kids in ten God. years. Yeah. Eight is enough. Eight is enough. Eight was more than enough. I mean, eight kids, 
with one bathroom in my that would have been the show house. called Eight is Too Much. Eight is way too. <laughs> there was a joke in our house that uh, our house was like a card game. You could never have a full house and a straight flush at the same time. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it was just kids everywhere, you know. And but you know, he made a musician's salary. It wasn't a lot. It was meager, but we never really wanted for much. You know, we weren't. We yeah. grew up. I wouldn't say we were poor, but, but you had a piano. Had, no. Oh, you did? Really? No, okay. my father okay. played his whole life and didn't own his own piano. Duh. Boy, it's great that you touched on that because it's part of the, the story. Um, so he had to go down to work to practice. He had to go to the, 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 the little, he, he, he played at a, at a, a, a supper club kind of place in, Ohio, in Columbus. And, um, of course, the kids weren't allowed in there. But he would go down and bring my brother Freddie, who was the drummer, and my brother Tony and Joe, who were the horn players, and for a period there, he had his little band. When I became of age, he wanted me to learn. I had no aptitude. I had no interest. I didn't care. I wanted to be a pilot. That was my big thing. And it got him frustrated. He, he I think it broke his heart a little bit that his youngest wasn't interested. But he gave up and um, you know worked with my brothers and stuff. It was around the same time period. I was eight years old. So this would have been around 1969 okay. that he found out he had cancer. And it was terminal, and he didn't want the family to know, so he swore the doctors to secrecy. And one day in 71, he was playing ball with us in the backyard and had a stroke, massive, massive stroke. And three months later, he was gone, just like the summer of 71, uh, from May to August 22nd, all of a sudden. We have no father, we have no income, we have nothing. And so... Needless to say, the whole family was up in turmoil. We didn't know how we were going to survive, you know, the winter. Um, and this is in around Columbus, Ohio. This right? is in Columbus, Ohio, a little suburb of, called Groveport. And um, we had, like I said, a little tidy house, and he couldn't afford a piano. But as irony or fate would have it, uh, a friend of his who loved my father and used to love to come here and play, about a year before he had the stroke, Gave him a baby grand piano, the one that's in this other room. It's against yeah, okay. the wall, that, that wow. old Gobranson. It's a 1926 piano. Had spider's webs and rat's nests oh in it. It was sitting out in a garage somewhere. But my father got that piano, and you'd swear it was a Steinway, man. He, right. he was so excited. For the first time, the Janetti house was going to have this piano. And um, he had it and was able to have a few jam sessions in the house and stuff. And then he had his stroke. And... That was it. The piano sat silent for the next two months or so. So one day, I walked in through the living room where the piano was sitting, you know. And uh, I walked by that piano a hundred times. Never even gave it a second thought. And But just one day, some somewhere around the end of uh, 71, November, December 71, I walked in, I looked at the piano. Remember, I was only nine years old. I was yeah, a little right. kid. And I couldn't even reach... The keys. So I, I I went over to the fireplace and grabbed a phone book and put the phone book on the chair. And I looked at the piano, you know, and I don't know, man. I the first song that came to my mind was uh, the theme from Love Story. Uh-huh. I mean, I literally sat down at the piano. Yeah. I looked at the piano. He's gonna play. He's gonna play. And my left hand just kind of went. I just did this, right? You know, I'm not playing, you know, chopsticks. I'm playing 
This is, you know, a and you'd never touched the keys before, never right? Never touched the keys before. Had no idea what I was doing, and I got to. And I remember I went. And I could see the keys up in my head. That the keys were playing way up here, you know. Yeah. They just magically went to where they needed to go. Yeah, it's like you know. <laughs> so. And my mom is in the kitchen cooking, and knows that the only piano player has been gone for three months. Right. So she thought the she ghost thought the radio was on. Well, she thought the radio was on. Oh, okay. Wow. Because she's hearing love story. Yeah. She's not hearing a practice thing. She's not hearing scales. She's yeah. hearing a song that she do. You know, Played love you story perfection that for the first time. Well, yeah. it wasn't perfection. I mean, I was stammering and stuttering, but she was cooking. Yeah. So she wasn't even thinking about, well, is it perfect or not? She's thinking, oh my God, I'm trying to cook and the radio's on and it's annoying me. Freddie, would you please go in the living room and shut the radio off? I can remember hearing her in the back of my head, you know. And my brother Freddie runs out and hears little Jimmy sitting at the piano playing on a phone book. On a phone book. (laughs) And I remember him yelling, Mom, Mom, it's Jimmy. It's Jimmy. He's playing the piano. And my mom comes running in the living room. She's got her apron on and stuff. She's been cooking, you know, and curlers or whatever. And she looks at me and she starts crying, you know. And she's like, what are you doing? You've never touched this thing. You never even gave it a second look. How are you playing? You know. And... She said that I looked up at her. I know I was only nine, so I don't remember saying this, but she said I looked up at her and I said, Mommy, Daddy's moving my fingers. Wow. True That's story. That's heavy, man. Okay. Is, wow. So, and, and from that point, Keach, out of nowhere, I'm not kidding, even to this day, when I hear music, it, it's like it bypasses a certain part of my brain and my being and it goes somewhere in my soul to this place where I see the notes playing at the top of my head and it just channels right out into my hands that's why if you watch me play I I look like I'm zoned off into a different place because in those early days if I tried to think and ration what I was doing or read anything or or even attempt to read anything my mind would go blank because it wasn't coming from that place it was coming from a place that I don't still to this day 50 years later understand Um, the only thing I can say is that there's a a God there's a higher power Um, and whatever this higher power is whether you want to believe in God or whatever you want to believe in I personally believe in God but um there, there's, there are things about this world we don't understand, but I think for some reason my father was taken too soon, and we weren't meant to be destitute. We were meant to survive, right. and this would become the method for the family to survive because the same guy that gave my father the piano came by after about a month of me playing and saw me playing, you know, and they were having discussions about how we were going to survive, and Earl said, well... You know, I'm thinking about opening up a bar, a club in Reynoldsburg, Ohio, and I need a band. Why don't the boys come down? They can play six nights a week. They'll be my band. You have a drummer I'll and pay a them. We have a drummer, a horn, trumpet, trombone. And and my mom said that. She goes, what kind of band will it be with a drummer and a horn and a trombone? And Earl's like, uh, Earl's name is Earl Lee. What about Jimmy? He's playing piano. And my mom's like, He's nine years old. You're going to put him in a bar? <laughs> you know what? Nine to two every night? He goes, it's a band. Yeah. Wow. And so now, 
at that point, 72 came, and so I'm 10. I turned yeah. 10 in January. So now I'm at least 10 years old. It's not as bad as nine. So uh, he built the place, and somewhere in that spring area of 72, my brothers and I uh, started working at this club called the Cozy Corral. Yeah. From nine to two, six nights a week. Did they school you in, because obviously you didn't know, you just knew a couple oh, there of things. Was no, but... no, by then, are you kidding? Dude, if you sang me a song, if you went, uh, it's nine o'clock on a Saturday, the notes would literally play in my head and uh, I would just sit and play. It's like perfect pitch. Pretty much. Way, I, like had relative, relative, I had relative, relative pitch. pitch. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and so my father, see, my father was a human karaoke. His Part of his gig at the club, there was no karaoke in those days. But all these people, Earl being one of them, would come in and say, Hey, Joey, you know, Earl, come on up here. You know, what do you want to do? Oh, I want to sing, uh, 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 you know, I, I'm just, I'm a dirty old man, you know. I'm <laughs> a dirty old man. And my father would come to you. Well, they found out that Joey was gone, but Joey Nichols boys are playing at this little bar in Reynoldsburg. Wow. So, oh, the Nichols boys. I didn't know Joey Nichols had kids. See, they didn't know him as Janetti. Okay. It's yeah, Joey right. Nichols, right? That's right. So what do you mean his boys? Yeah, Jimmy Nichols and Tony Nichols and Freddie Nichols and Joe, you know, Joey Jr., you know. So that's where Jimmy Nichols became now, yeah. 10 years old, you know. So they would come into the bar that my father was in, and they would say, hey, you know, your father used to play Answer Me. You know Answer Me? And I'm like, dude, I'm... Ten. Hum a few bars. Yeah, yeah, but I would. Hum a few bars. Today. Answer me. And I would hear that, you know. You know, I'd be like, uh, uh, you know, oh, my love. Well, my hearers would hear that, and I would go, answer me. Must be. Oh, my love. And I knew it kind of, there'd be no reason why they'd stay on that chord that long. Oh, my love. So I'd find them, you know. And I just so I would lag behind the melody, okay? I'd hear the melody. Please answer me. And so I'd hear the melody. Catch up to the to the And I would just catch up to them as they sang. But my ears would hear it and and it just seemed to know what was right. Now look, they weren't always perfect, and some of them were if the chord was was really like weird diminished and stuff, I didn't quite understand diminished chords at ten years old, but I would mm-hmm. learn them because I could hear the voicings. Um, and so you know, look, at around this time, uh, my my mother knew a, a a teacher, piano teacher, who lived across the street. They wanted to know, all right, how smart is he? What does he know? What is his real aptitude on piano? So they took me down to this university of piano on Broad Street, and they gave me this test. And to be honest with you, I don't remember a whole lot about it. I remember it was kind of a written test, a bunch of questions and different things. And I did what I was told. I took the test, you know. And the test came back that I was like a genius. The test came back 99, 98s. And uh, Eleanor said, uh, Marion, I think he's brilliant. I'll give him a scholarship. I'll teach him how to play. It won't cost you a dime. And she's like, what are you kidding? He already knows how to play. Well, (laughs) Well, that's part of the problem, Keach, was... They wanted me to learn how to read. Right. Uh-huh. But the minute I would see the notes, I would memorize them. And all of a sudden, the notes didn't mean anything to me. So they'd give me this thing. And, of course, at night, I'd be in a bar till 2 in the morning, winging it, right? Yeah. And then the next week, I'd come in for my lesson, and I'd be ad-libbing. I'd be adding notes and shit. They're going, uh, Mr. Genetti, that's not what's on the paper. 
I'm like, oh, oh, it's not, you know. I'm lo- like, I'm looking <laughs> like I'm Reedy, right? Yeah. But I'm playing totally what's in my head. Like well, Glenn Campbell, didn't Glenn Campbell was the only uh, uh, wrecking crew that didn't, that didn't read? read. Oh, I didn't, didn't know read. that. That's yeah. that he sense. just knew what to play. He just of. knew it was very, you know, inspirational, spontaneous, you know. So, but what happened to me was the anguish of having these teachers. I mean, I actually they sent me to Capital University for a little while, hoping that that would help and. Between everything that happened and me playing and being just, you know, in sixth grade and trying to do school and all these things, I ended up having a nervous breakdown at like 10 or 11 years old. And my mom got very defensive real quickly and said, Dad, we're going to pull him out of classes. This isn't working. He's he's way, and even the teacher said his, his ears are way too far ahead of his eyes. Mm-hmm. You're wasting your time. If he ever wants to learn, the scholarship stands, but it's best if he did for now. Yeah, I see. That took care of that. Lessons, no more. But from that point on, now the Nichols brothers became an entity, and we started playing all over Columbus, and we started small, and the word of mouth got out. We played Crozy Corral for three or four years and packed the place every night, you know. And uh, Doing then, your own music? Did you kind of uh, Not then. You know, it turned out that we is is... You know, I mean, I can play piano and all. I've never considered myself a virtuoso on the piano. I consider myself, you know, whatever it is that I do. But I know what my limitations are. My left hand to this day still kind of sucks. But my right hand's pretty good. You would never know it. You, no I hide it well. It. <laughs> I hide it well. But And I've gotten more comfortable over the years. But what I found out was, I, in the way that I could hear piano parts, I could hear vocal parts, too. And my brothers and I got really good at harmonies, and there were four of us. And so we, st- I started dissecting the Beach Boys and the Four Seasons, the Four Freshmen, Four Freshmen, and became we became a really amazing vocal band. Wow. And so, and we would do acapella stuff and do do all this stuff. And so uh, that became part of the shtick. Was was you know we could uh, oh, and also the guy. Um, no, I'm sorry, it wasn't Earl. Another friend of the family who was kind of responsible for getting us started, uh, he knew that the band was small, had a couple horns, a piano, which you could throw on a dolly, and a little trap drum set my brother Freddie had. It was like a Ringo set. So he asked us if we would go down to Chillicothe and play at the Veterans Hospital for the, all the veterans who couldn't leave their wards. Right. So because Dobby was our dance teacher and a friend of the family's, uh, we agreed to help him in exchange for dance lessons. So my brothers and I would go down to Chillicothe. They'd put us on a, a big kind of dolly thing, you know, those things like you get at uh, 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 Shopco or what do they call that, uh, Costco? Yeah. You know, those big dollies? Yeah, right. Well, they'd load our drum set and a piano on one side, and my brother would be on horns, and they'd wheel us into these wards. And we would do little shows for all the... So your whole stage know, setup was on Would be on dolly. a big dolly. Okay, they'd just wheel mean. us from ward to ward. <laughs> and all these invalid veterans, you know, we'd entertain them for the whole day. And then we'd go into the cafeteria and play a bigger show. And, and we'd do that a couple times a year for the veterans, which was a big deal for us. And it helped... To establish us, people started talking about the band. And the next thing you know, uh, you know, I was getting ready to graduate in 1980. And I'd written a couple songs. And they were pretty cool, but it was nothing great. You know, I didn't really understand a lot about writing in those days. But then around 81, 
Uh, we met, I think, someone that you're probably very familiar with because I, I think they had a hand in your career. Uh, we met a guy named George Moffat from Variety Attractions. Okay, right. And George came to hear the band and loved the band and needed a mid-level band that he could put out. You know, I mean, you got your Lone Stars making all this big money. You got magicians making little money. But he needed a band that made mid-money that could entertain yeah. in that three to four to $5,000 range. And... We were the perfect band. We were self-contained. Yeah. You know, we, we had a, a vehicle. We could carry our own gear. And, and we, we were we were crazy. I mean, yeah. you know, in all the years that we were a band, 24 years as a band, we never rehearsed. Not That's a single incredible. time we never rehearsed. We just played. And yeah. if we wanted to learn a new song, we did it right there on the stage. People would say, hey, do you guys know, <laughs> you know, this old Beatles song? You know, uh, I just seen her face and we'd just do yeah. it. And Would you we discuss it a little bit before you play? Oh, it's no. in G and it's... Uh, no, I just... We knew the key, so yeah. we just played oh, okay. it. You know, we, yeah. It so was you guys a, were the champions of Stump the Band. Oh, dude, we were Stump the Band before there was a Stump. That's a you great You could not comment. ever Stump the Band. Well, you couldn't Stump us. No, as a matter of fact, the fun part was, when we were doing club dates, we would have Elton John night. Oh, okay. Right. All night. Wow. And we'd just say, just, we'd, I'd do Elton John songs. Beatle Night, Beach Boy Night. And people would just like. So you were also the first cover bands ever. You know, I mean, tribute well, we bands. Were you were the first tribute we, bands we ever. We were the fir- one of the first. <laughs> well, we were one of the few tribute bands that wouldn't just do one or two songs. Right. We could literally do the whole, whole albums and wow. stuff, you know. Tony, my brother Tony was a was a nut for records. So he would, we'd, he'd play these things over and over. And so we'd all listen to them at the house and. And like I said, we had this this great. My brothers are all incredibly talented. I don't get all the credit. My brothers are all great. They just, for some reason, when it really came down to that thing that it took to to really push us over the edge, and he didn't seem to have the drive I did. I knew that I got this gift for a reason, and I wasn't going to stop until I figured out what that reason was. So I would push myself and push myself. And I became kind of the de facto leader of the Nichols Brothers oh, yeah. just because I was nuts. I mean, there was nothing I wouldn't do on stage. I was crazy, spontaneous. <laughs> you know, when I did Elton John, you know, I'd jump up in the air and I'd fall down on the floor and, and then I'd roll over and play upside down, you know. Oh, play. my gosh. And wow. it was crazy, but I was damaging my body back then, too. I did, just didn't know it. I know it now. I didn't, <laughs> didn't know it then. But, yeah, there was nothing we wouldn't do. And George loved it. The audiences that we played for, they'd bring us back. We were the longest-running band ever at York Fair, the history of the fair, uh, except for Alabama. The, the Alabama was the only band wow. that played longer than the Nichols Brothers. So uh, that's what we did until uh, we met some investors who uh, heard us up in upstate New York, heard me play an original song that I wrote about my father called 88 Keys, 88 Keys. that I wrote. Um and uh, uh, he he's out there having a business meeting, and he's hearing me play in the background, and he starts crying, you know. And the, his, he you was were singing it to? I was singing was... it to the room, you know, oh, just doing the song. And he starts crying, and the, his partners are going, what's the matter with you? He goes, are you listening to this song? This kid's singing up here. It's, he wrote it about his father. And they go, what are you crying for? He goes, you're not listening to the song. <laughs> so he sent for us, you know, after the break, and we... He, he sat us down and he said, uh, what are you guys doing in Holy Hand, New York? And we said, well, the owner fixed our bus and we told him we'd play for him, you know, pick the date. And he happened to pick the day before Christmas when no one's out. And he said, well, we're out and you guys don't belong in Holy Hand, New York. 
you guys need to be in Nashville and we're going to move you to Nashville and we're going to back you. So you're, you and your shit. brothers all, y'all all, I'm, that was going to be my next question was how did you get to Nashville? What brought you here? That's what brought us. The Nichols brothers. The Nichols brothers. So wow. uh, we finally got our shot. And in 93, Terry Kimbagula brought us to Nashville, said we're going to, and the irony was we were, I was doing Vegas a lot at that point. And Vegas, I, I, I didn't drink water. We The band never drank alcohol. We never party. We never did drugs. We never smoked even grass, nothing. We were like we were like the Osmonds, you know. But I liked my soda and, you know, a diet, or diet Coke back in those days. I wasn't drinking enough water. Mm-hmm. And when you're in Vegas singing six nights a week, four hours a night, and you're not drinking water, you're going to do some damage. And we never, like I told you, we never stopped playing. Right. We, from 72 to 93, we played every week, every night, every year wow. for 21, 22 years. So you guys as a band were out in Vegas doing We were out in stuff? Vegas playing at, at, at the showboat, and I lost my voice. And I went and saw this doctor, Dr. Tangretti, out there. And he said, well, the bad news is you got a nodule on your vocal cord, and you're either going to have to take a break or have surgery or you're going to lose your voice and maybe damage it for the rest of your life. And it was humbling and incredibly upsetting. And we didn't know what we were going to do because again, we were still, even though the, everybody was older, we were still supporting the family, you know? So, and all of a sudden out of nowhere, again, talking about miracles, talk about there is a God and there's more to this story, but I, I won't go into it. We don't have that much time, but, we meet the Bagulas, and all of a sudden, the Bagulas move us to Nashville, and all of a sudden, we are given a break, about a year break, that I didn't have to sing, which was long enough for my vocal cords to heal. And I was set, and we started writing with different writers. I met Tim Johnson during that period, and started working with David Malloy at Malloy Boys. Right. I remember uh, David coming in while I was working with my brothers, and he handed me a tape, uh, and he said, hey, I need you to mix this for me. David Malloy is a, a Grammy-winning producer who produced... Yeah. Uh, Eddie Rabbit, Rabbit and all that and stuff. Crystal yeah. Gale and Kenny Rogers. And the studio that my brothers and I were recording at was co-owned by David. So unbeknownst to me, he was watching what I was doing and noticing that I was playing. I guess he liked some of what I did and stuff. So he said, uh, "He said, would you mix this for me? And I'm like, sure. I get, you know, I'm like... We've never actually formally met. <laughs> well, you know, and so we met, and I was humbled that he even asked, you know. I'm like, what is it? He says, oh, it's a band I'm working with called Texas Sea. And I'm like, really? What a strange name. How do you Texas Sea? Well, he said, you know, they wanted to be in Texas and Tennessee and the, the Texas Sea. And I remember because there was a drummer in that band, uh, uh, a bunch of guys, John Rich, Keith mm-hmm. Rainwater. You were back then, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, it was you guys. It was Lone Star before there was Lone Star. The very first thing I ever did in Nashville was mix your project called oh. Hit the Ground Lovin'. I remember that, yeah. Remember that I song? Remember that song. John it was Lee, on a demo. John that we did. lead. We did, did a demo. Wow. And here I go, and I was blown away. I'm going, wow, this is a band. I'm like, this is a band. And I'm thinking about my brothers, and I'm going, wow, you know, we're not this good. This is, this. And I asked David, I said, are these guys actually playing? He goes, yeah, that's the band. I'm like, wow, these guys are good, you know. So I mixed the shit out of it. I did. I spent all night working on it. Literally all night. I was up till two in the morning. Mixed it. And the next thing I know, freaking this band gets a record deal. Galani signs him and they change the name to Lone Star. And I'm like, 
wow. what the hell? I wow. said, uh, I'm still over here struggling trying to get my band together. <laughs> you know? They do that. And all of a sudden, I just played on this thing. And the next thing I know, he's got me working with Tim, and we cut I Let Her Lie on Daryl Singletary. Yeah. And boom, that's a number one record. And my brothers and I, I'm like, this math isn't working. <laughs> what are we doing wrong? What here? are we doing wrong? You know. <laughs> well, so we finally got our shot to showcase. <laughs> and um, we showcased at the Wild Horse. We did a really great little project and everything. Which was the club, by the way, that we opened up. We were oh, the house band. So we, were, funny. There's another we were the idea. guinea pig band Dude, in, that, in that place. That was like... They were like, okay, we're, we're opening tonight, sort of. It's a soft opening. So we're going to invite people in, but we're not quite through putting everything together. So we were literally on stage while they were soldering wires together while we were playing. Well, do you remember the original PA that was in that room? Was yeah, terrible. it was terrible. Terrible, yeah. right? And I heard someone. It wasn't you guys. I heard someone in that room, and I'm like, oh, this PA, if we're going to showcase... It's and if terrible. I remember right, it was because they had the subs were kind of way down by the dance floor, and the mains were way, way up, up that, high, that like way above head, your head, and they were just not <laughs> capable of. And they were small, yeah. and it was a volume room, and you got to move air. Yeah, right. you can't lose little speakers in a room like that and expect it to have clarity. So it was just one big muffled mess, you know. So we do this guy, uh, Rich Wakefield, Rick, Rich Wakefield. And uh, he was a friend of ours, used to do a variety of dates and stuff. And he was actually a neighbor. And we asked Rich if he would come out and mix our showcase. And we said, would you, we want to bring in our own PA. Because that PA is not going to yeah. cut it. It will sound like shit. And we got to make a good impression. So we actually were the first band to bring in our own. We brought stacks in and put wow. them right on the stage. Well, the week of our showcase... It just so happens that the Oklahoma City Federal Building was blown up. Huh. Remember anything about that? The, no. Huh. The o Oklahoma City Federal Building. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay. I, th I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. The, the explosion. Mm -hmm, the bomb. Mm -hmm. Big bomb. Yeah. Made the news. Remember who was remember. indicted for the Oklahoma City bombing? Yeah. I do. Hmm. Remember their names by any chance? It escapes me, but... Well, there was uh, Timothy McVeigh. Right, okay. But there was Terry and James Nichols. Oh, my gosh. Otherwise known as the Nichols Brothers. Oh, no, you're kidding me. <laughs> so here we are, the Nichols Brothers, getting ready to make a big splash at the I freaking no idea. Wild Horse, you know. Explosive new sound, dynamite new act, and the Oklahoma City oh, Federal Building is blown up by the Nichols God. Brothers. Nobody was going to touch us with like, a 10-foot pole. Not good words. Not good words to use. <laughs> Nobody would touch us. It was oh my just, gosh. They served the Nichols brothers, and the, the country was so volatile, it just wasn't meant to be. Nichols brothers. Golly, and, I never knew that. Yeah. I never knew that they would have made the connection. Yeah, well, the whole world knew. did at that point, you know, because it was such <laughs> oh news. God. So, you know, we're sitting there going, well, what's the what's the odds? What are we going to change our name to? <laughs> yeah, the Jannettys, you know, we thought about it. But, as irony would have it, David, at that point, started working with a young artist named Mindy McCready. Right. And yeah. Mindy and I and David were working God, all hours, working on her vocal and fighting songs, spent a whole year with her. And uh, she was on her same label, BNA. Same label. Yeah, yeah. And she was told by her mother that she was to have a record deal a year uh, from the time she moved to Nashville or she needed to go back home and go to college. Ah. And uh, about 50 weeks to the day, uh, BNA offered her a deal. And I remember going to Malloy Boys, and I, we worked. And as I came down the stairs, I was heading to my car, 
and Mindy walks over to the little balcony there and she goes, oh, hey, Jimmy, by the way, um, you're playing on my record. And I'm like, what? She goes, you're playing on my record. It was the first time that I'd been offered a chance to work on a master. I see, yeah. Okay. So, as it a session be, piano player. As a session player, yeah. piano player. I mean, I'd uh, done, I did a Daryl Singletary's thing, but I, I just did overdubs. I wasn't hired as the session guy. Uh-huh. Um, and all of a sudden, I'm been asked to play three days of triples. Wow. So, triples meaning like three so sessions a day. So three sessions a day. day, right? a day yeah. That's a 10, 2, and a 6. Wow. Double scale. Okay. And I mean, I'm supposed to be in the studio now with Dan Huff, Paul Lime, uh, right. uh, Paul Franklin. Yeah. I believe Larry Byron was the acoustic player. Wow, uh, Spady Brandon was the biggest. Now, for player. those that don't know, these are all heavy hitters, heavy, like heavy session heavy, guys. These are the on every tier. record that you've ever heard. These guys are on it. David Malloy kind of yeah. gave some of these guys their break. David Malloy yeah. discovered some of these guys. So yeah, Shania, you name it, they're the biggest. They were Dan playing on, on yeah. everything. Um, and here's little Jimmy Nichols being offered to play to play with him. Right. <laughs> well, it happens that it it conflicted with. Uh, some dates I was on with my brothers and I went to my brothers and said hey I've been offered this opportunity and blah 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 well they wouldn't let me do it oh no they said well what are we going to do and I'm like cover yourselves for a couple days get another piano player for a minute (laughs) they wouldn't do it wow I had to go to Mindy and say I can't do the dates oh no so you didn't do it well I didn't do the first track oh I see yeah but I broke up with the band after that yeah. and did the second track of date and did all the overdubs of the first part, yeah. plus all the vocals, all the background vocals. And Tanya and I both engineered on the record. And we ended up wow. playing on the whole album, but I actually, that my first track and stuff was uh, Guys Do It All the Time, which became her only number yeah. one, uh, or at that time, the only number one. So uh, Minnie uh, McCready kind of gave you your start, your start as a session player. Minnie McCready gave me my start as a, as a session player. And then where did it go from there? Was it oh just, God, from just there, busy? David and I became inseparable. David used me <sighs> on everything. So the next thing I know, David's working with Andy Griggs, and we cut "You'll Ever Be Lonely," and that became a number one. And then another number one with Andy. Uh, she's more. Rob Crosby, I think, and Liz Hegman wrote it. Wow. And part of this thing is I'm listening to these incredible songwriters, and I realized just how bad my writing was. I realized part of my thing was. I wasn't the writer that I thought I was. Yeah. I was okay, but I wasn't the writer I thought I was. I wasn't good enough to have gotten what I thought I deserved. So I be- developed writer's block. Yeah. I, I didn't write from 95 until I started Black River, which was in 2007. Yeah. I didn't write a single song for over 10 years. You know, I one thing about the piano that I've always... Uh, admired, I guess, is that you say it's the only instrument when you go in the studio where you're not on your own equipment. But also, it's really, to me, in my mind, the only instrument where every single note is laid out right in front of you. Oh, yeah. Visually. And that's that's and the beauty of the It's right there. It's right there. Whereas there guitar and drums, no, you have to kind of do combinations. Well, like, you can tune a, a snare to a C note or whatever, and you can also tune one of your toms to the same C note, or you can, if you tune that way. On a guitar, you can have three different positions where the same interval of like an A minor exists. Yeah. But on the piano, there's one A minor third position. Yeah. There's one A, you know, C minor. And it's C all minor, right, and it's all there, right there, there in front of you, and you can just reach it. It's all reachable. So that's one the time. beauty of the piano, yeah. okay? The, the bad part, like we talked about, was that I'm the guy 
the only guy that walks into the room and doesn't get to play his own instrument. Right. So it requires a really quick study when you sit down, you know, uh, some of the first things I do is check the action, how fast yeah. the key, key responds. So to, in studio you know, playing, there's a thing. nuance. There's a oh, certain, totally. there's a finesse that you have to have that it comes from playing your own instrument pretty much, which you don't have because you have to have sit down with somebody else. I got to sit down, you know. If piano. I want to, if I want to sit down on a piano and play something like uh, Sarah McLaughlin's, uh, you know, you know, you know that song that. Spend uh, all your time away. That song for that special moment. You know, it's like you just yeah. gotta. You barely There's finesse your, there that you, you have to know. You barely lay your hands down, you know. But then you have to find out, well, how would this piano respond if you're going yeah. How's that piano going to speak, you know? You know, yeah. and, you know, is it going to be, is it going to be bright up here? Is it going to be? What's the key throw? Like, what's the damper pedal noise? Yeah. How much? You right. Know, That's true. You, you, How much to push? When you got a microphone on the on this thing, this little bit of damper pedal, you can hear it. So I, you got to learn to be so quiet with the pedal that you could go from. And I already pushed it down. You won't hear it. Yeah. You know, and little things like if you're playing, like a lot of guys will play up here and they won't use the damper pedal, but. If you'll notice the difference, if like I play it, see. But if you push the damper pedal down, listen to how the notes carry over. It's like a reason. Yeah. You know? They linger, yeah. Hey! <laughs> hey! Yeah, it is it's like a, a reverb, reverb right. you okay? <laughs> wow. Well, I use the damper pedal a lot when I play. Yeah. When I was a younger kid, I think I used it as a bit of a crutch. But as I've gotten older, I've gotten to appreciate uh, how much the, the, the damper pedal adds to the nuances of the style that I play. Yeah. So when you walk into a session, you would normally just like check it everything out. And Absolutely. Push and check and the damper pedal and check all the dynamics. Check the throw. And, and you got to do it quick because a lot. And, and part of the yeah. advantage of of walking in and the, the engineer is going to say, hey, man, let's check the piano level. That's a great opportunity to accomplish all that because I can Feel, sit there and yeah. play and just vibe and, and vamp and, and learn the instrument while he's EQing it, checking yeah. for levels. So when you're sure doing that, you're, in your mind, you're, you're creating a little mental map of, okay, this is what this piano does. It's this feel, this is a little sticky or this is too a lot of spring. I'll tell you a great story. Mind. Yes, but sometimes in my mind... Uh, I'm at I'm auditioning. Okay, you ready for this one? So, our dear friend Dan Hoff, who yes. you know we both idolize. I get a call one day, and I had played on Reba, I played on a bunch of stuff, but at that point, I was doing all this stuff with David Malloy, yeah. and so I was like David's guy. Okay, but I wasn't getting a lot of calls from a lot of other engineers. I mean producers, some, but not a bunch. Dan had called me on your stuff and a couple couple things. I think I did, uh, well, I can't remember. He did another, a Katrina Elam thing or something. I did a couple other things with Dan. Anyway, 
But one day Dan calls me up and he goes, uh, hey, Jimmy, it's Dan. Uh, I'm like, hey, man, what's going on? He never called me. Very. <laughs> uh, he called me personally. He goes, hey, uh, what are you doing tomorrow morning? I'm like, I uh, got a demo session. And he goes, uh, <laughs> can you get out of it? I'm like, man, tomorrow morning, what, what's going on? He goes, man, I think I need you on a date. I said, a record date? He goes, yeah. I goes, I said, I don't know. I could try. Well, he's telling me he's kind of heaven and on about what it's about. He won't come out. And then finally he goes, all right, all right I'll tell you what it is, but you just you know, keep it under your hat. But he goes, uh, I'm cutting some stuff on Faith, Faith Hill. And, of course, Faith was yeah. Elvis at that point. She was huge. Huge. This would have been uh, two, 2005. 2005. Because okay, I was out with Reba at the time. I was Reba's musical director, and we were touring. I was fourth by fourth year with Reba. And but we were home during this little stint, and I'm like, oh my God, Faith Hill, you know. I'm like, dude, I'll find a way to get out of here. Yeah, I gotta have you because we're cutting this song, and it's very Eltonish, and it's right down your alley. Eltonish, like Elton John, very Elton John. Elton John Elton's my main. He's my main idol, you know, okay, besides my father. So, and he apparently Dad knows this. Yeah. From the way I play this stuff, so I, I said, dude, let me make a call. So I called, got out of the date. I called this friend of mine who had me booked. I said, dude, I, I got an opportunity, blah, blah, blah. Dan calls me back an hour later and says, man, I hate to do this, but I think I'm making a mistake, man. Can you, you know, you understand if I, you know, I'm going to just go ahead and do it with guitar. And I was crushed. I'm like, oh, you kidding me. I got out of my, so I lost the session. She goes, man, I am so sorry, Jimmy, but I'll make it up to you, I promise. What am I going to do? Tell Dan to go, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I said, dude, I understand, which I was just about in tears. But I said, dude, it's cool, you know. So I hung up. I told Tanya. We were both really bummed. I called the guy back, and I got my session back. Right. So, and I know, where you're, I know you're going with this. Do you? <laughs> well, he called you back and said, I do need you. Seven <laughs> right? in the morning, <laughs> the next morning. Nichols. Man, I had an epiphany. I can't sleep all night. I need I need you back. Can you get out? <laughs> I had a call to go back two hours before the date and oh cancel God. again. Okay. But, back but he told me about the song and told me what we were doing and said, you know, this is, I think it needs to be very Eltonish inspired. So what I did was I went in while we were, I was at Blackbird, and while we were getting sounds on the piano, I started playing, I had the chart in front of me. So I started playing the song on piano, how I heard it in my head. And he heard that. Dan did? Dan did, yeah. because he was in the studio. And so, automatically, I started building a template that he started digging. Faith was late. Faith finally shows up about hour or so before the end of the session. And, uh, make a long story short, she wasn't happy with anything the band was hitting. Uh, we were five minutes away from having to I had to leave for another session. Five minutes, we had a chance at one take, and I asked Faith, I said, can we try something? Can we just say, push the band back? Let's just, you and I go in. You get on the microphone. Let me play this thing I was working on earlier, and let's let the band vibe off of that, okay? The song, by the way, is called Why. It's out. You mm -hmm. can get it. But the context of the song was, why would someone leave the stage in the middle of the song? Right. All right? It was written about Mitch Hedberg, the comedian, who killed himself at the, wow. at the pinnacle of his career. 
and Alan Shamblin was one of the writers. It's an incredible song. Wow. Incredible song. When you hear, go find that version and you'll hear. Because we cut it with no click, which meant I was under the gun to keep a good tempo. Yeah. It was just me and her at the top of the song. And, of course, Vinny and all these guys are on the date. And Dan's playing. Vinny Caliuta, by the Vinny way. Vinny Caliuta. Vinny Caliuta. And I'd never worked with Vinny before. You know? Oh, wow. And so I'm under the gun. This is it. Sink or swim. And we cut it in one take, and I got to the last chord, and I remember Faith going, oh, that was unbelievable. She goes, oh, my God, Jimmy. You know, and I'm like, and so I'm starting to well up a little bit because I'm like, that was a moment, right? Yeah. My hands were shaking, and you know, I could tell we cut the shit out of it. So I walk in the control room, and everybody in the control room starts applauding. Wow. Yeah, it never happened like this, right? And I, I'm like, I'm so sorry. I have literally got to go out the door because I'm supposed to be at another date. I'm so happy. And she runs up and she grabs me and hugs me. She just met me wow. an hour earlier. And I walk out to my car and I get in my car and I'm getting ready to back out and the phone rings and it's Dan. He goes, Jimmy. I'm like, yeah, man. He goes, dude, I just want to say something. Your career just changed forever. Wow. And did it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. From that point on. Because you on, became her band leader at some point. Well, not right? only did I become her musical director, not only did I get to tour on the largest country tour in history, but it just skyrocketed from there. Everybody, you know. I yeah. mean, Kelly Pickler, Carrie Underwood. Uh, I did an Elton John track. I did yeah. all this. I did all this stuff. Buck Cherry and Keith Urban and just wow. my career just blew up. He was right. He because was of that one right. moment. Because much. of that this kind of... one moment where you have to rise and be bigger than the moment. And it's not about ego. As a matter of fact, it's the exact opposite. You have to check your ego and you have to do something that we, I've kind of coined, me and Tim Johnson coined the phrase, honor thy song. It's all about the song. Yeah. It's all about yeah. the lyrics. It's all about the story. And if you lose the story, you lose the song. And I learned it early because I learned from the best with David Malloy, J. Gary Smith, you know, Byron Gallimore, Tony Brown. These guys yeah. all get it, you know. Uh, well, I can, I can make an observation here and say that the two most pinnacle moments in your life career were when it was just you and the piano by yourself and you took a leap of faith and said, Wow, that's really let just, cool. Let me just see what happens here, you know. Totally. Both times. Both, both times. times. When you were nine years old. Yeah. And when you I never even thought about it that way, but you're absolutely right. It's but that goes back to that thing that uh, that is the unexplained thing, the the uh, the you know the I don't know what you call it, the miracle thing, the this gift that that I I've been very blessed to be given. And let me tell you something, man. There ain't a day goes by where I even think about taking this thing for granted. Oh, I am right. so blessed every morning I get up that not only do I get to make music for a living, but that I get to do it the way I get to do it. That somehow I don't have people saying, oh, you got to do this. We're going to hire you because of what you do. Yeah. You know, and yeah. and that is so uh, humbling, but also inspiring and incredibly, I don't know, man, I'm just so grateful yeah. for all of it. You I know? think we all feel that way. All of us that have been doing this I for a long time, so. we feel like every day is like, we it's, get to do it again. Right? Yeah. And we get paid. It's like I got, I've got. i been going to school now down here for 28 years, yeah, and right, I get paid yeah. for it. You know? Every day. What, what a gift, you know? And so, yeah, uh, that's kind of the story of it all, you know, from there touring with Faith. And, and at some Tim, point, Faith must you know? have thought, I want this guy 
I want this guy as my band leader. I oh, want him like, to, like a month yeah. later, yeah. I get a call from Sandra Westerman. We, we ended up cutting 60-some sides on Faith for that Fireflies record. But about a month later, they knew they were going to do radio promotion, and Faith, a Faith manager calls them and says, Faith wants you to be her, her MD. And at that point, Tim Akers, God rest his soul, had been with her. And right. uh, they decided to bring me in instead. And, I, again, I knew that I was replacing Tim, who I highly respected and admired. Yeah. And uh, But I was still Reba's musical director. Oh, right. Okay. I see. So I didn't know what to do. <laughs> so for the first year, I did them both. I did Reba and Faith. Wow. In that 2005. That was a, a and crazy... And this whole time your brothers are going, what, what's... My brothers were incredibly is... proud of me. My <laughs> brothers, you know, they all kind of went off. They followed my career. I always let them know. We always talked. And they were incredibly proud. And That's I've always good. been really supportive. I've, I know that they miss the times. Because, look, man, we were kids when we started playing. Yeah. And we had no vocation. It's like when music dried up, we thought we were going to be famous. We thought we were going to be the next Osmonds or the next Jackson 5. And 22-some years later, you know, we it just fizzled. And all of a sudden, my brother Tony, who was 15 when we started, was 30-something with no vocation. What do you what, yeah. what does a 37-year-old guy do uh, all of a sudden? If that's all you've work? ever done. Yeah. If that's all you've ever done is play music. Did your brothers ever think about a session career at all? Freddie would have been the one, I think, more than anybody. Freddie yeah. was a really good What did drummer. he play? The Drums. Drums, yeah. Freddie was a, a, a pretty darn solid drummer. But uh, I don't know, you know. I, I, I can't figure out if it was laziness, if it was confidence, if I don't know why, uh, you know, Freddie ended up uh, going to the car business, selling cars, and it just wasn't a couple as bad. different things. No, I, I guess, guess not, you know. Um, at one point, uh, he had bought Tommy Harden's drum set that was out on the Reba tour. I had Tommy on my podcast. A Tommy's few weeks great. Ago, yeah. Tommy and I are brothers. You know, we got to do sessions. As a matter of fact, when I did the Reba record that got me the gig with her, uh, they wanted me to bring out the band that was on that record. And that would have been Paul Lime, Spadey. Yeah. B. James Lowry, Jerry McPherson, myself. Well, I just assumed Paul probably wouldn't tour because he was the A team yeah. guy. Right. He wasn't going to leave Nashville to go out and make you know a few hundred dollars on the road. Yeah. Well, it was actually pretty good money, but I thought if he got called for a Kenny Chesney session, I'm going to have to find a sub. Yeah. And I took a real leap of faith, and I called Marvel, and I said, I got a drummer that I think would give you what Paul could give you but he won't bail because he's a young cat, you know. What's his name? Tommy Harton, you know. So I got Tommy the gig, and uh, I did make great friends with Paul, yeah. but we've since, you know, I actually brought Paul out when I worked with Faith, and he came out for a year on, on that wow. tour. But but Tommy, I know he's grateful because Tommy yeah. ended up working with her for over 10 years. Did Vinny call you to go out on tour? I know he played Vinny some award shows Vinny went out with us on a few dates with, Re with Faith, he did a bunch of promotion dates. We did the uh, Fireflies concert series, the live concert and the record out in Pantages. And then we did a bunch of radio and TV dates and had a blast. And as fate would have it again, I've been working with a, a songwriter, uh, one of the, the greatest songwriters in the history of popular music, uh, a guy named Steve Dorff, uh, who works with Vinny and all those L.A. cats all the time. And Vinny started, or uh, Steve started hiring me to fly out to L.A. And, you know, all of a sudden I'm in the studio with, with Vinny out in L.A. in his world. 
you know, wow. doing stuff out there for like uh, uh, Bill Medley, you know, wow. and Rodney Carrington and doing records out there. We did a soundtrack for a movie, a couple soundtracks for a couple movies, actually. Yeah. Pure Country 2 and uh, the uh, a movie called September Dawn. Uh, Leanne Womack sang the theme song. And so, yeah, next thing I know, Vinny and I have become buddies. Yeah. Vinny and I, we're both I mean, Italian. You have some stories about Vinny. we got great stories about Vinny. <laughs> um, uh, so how did you get into producing? I know you've been producing for a while, and how did that, So you that's know, just a natural progression. Right? It was a natural progression because whenever I was with, the, I started working with my brothers, in the, our first record was in 79, and I was only 17 years old, I think. Uh, or, yeah, somewhere 17 or 18. Um, and I was already kind of, the de facto producer just because of the fact that I could hear all these things in my you head. all the notes in front of you. Everything was right <laughs> in front of me and everything was in my head. And so I felt so comfortable in the studio all the way back in those late 70s that whenever I came in the studio, it seemed a natural thing for me to think as a producer, okay? Yeah. I remember we were working with uh, Reba and we were doing a song called Forever Love. And the, the the theme of the song was, uh, it was, uh, let's see, I think it was, uh, uh, that was like, you know, the building. So, you know, the song was like, uh, uh, forever love, I promise to, I don't know if you know that song, right? Remember that, yeah. Well, we're in the studio and we're cutting the song and we get to the second verse and it goes, So hold on to the And it goes back down that key again. Yeah. And so we're, we're working on this song and, and, you know, Dan Huff, all these guys are in the studio and it just, it was good, but something was missing, you know? It needed another thing. It needed yeah. another thing. And I knew right away what it needed, but I didn't say anything. I just kind of, because, you held again, back. I don't want to push my thoughts. I didn't know Reba that well. It's the first time I'd worked with her. Well, everybody's throwing ideas around, and I remember Reba getting on the top back going, you know, Jimmy, you're being awful quiet in there. What do you think? <laughs> and I went, well, I said, I think we're missing the point. I said, I think it need, the, the problem is, it's it's just laying there on the second chorus. I think it needs to lift. I think maybe if we modulate the second chorus, it'll lift the song up and take it to a different place. She's like, what do you mean? What I don't understand. I said, because well, Reba gets something called demo love. Right. When she hears a song and she falls in love with the demo, she well, kind of just, like, it. just yeah. like that, right? I said, well, instead of going, well, hold on to these, there's a mindset of forever love. I think you should go, and because my mind yeah. hears these notes and knows the note value of yeah. every chord pretty instantaneously so i don't have to think about it it just yeah. happens um and so uh, i can imagine everybody in the here's something interesting i've never told anybody clapping this. and <laughs> when i was a kid uh Again, I was playing and stuff. I remember sitting around like in the bedroom trying to take a nap, and I would find a note. I would go da da, 
And in my head, I would go, okay, what's a great way to get back to da? How many ways could I go da? How many ways could I keep getting back to this note? And I would, in my head, over and over and over for hours. Where I wanted it always to sound musical. I didn't want it to sound like I'm trying to force back to da na. I want to see if I could. How many ways? And so practicing in your mind. In my mind, even as a kid, I think I was prepared myself for this eventuality that someday I'm going to be in the studio with one of the greatest singers in the history of music. And she's going to challenge me. And all of a sudden, I got to hear this progression in my head. And I did. I said, yeah. we'll do this. And she goes, oh, my God. I love that. Let's do that. And so we did it. And you literally could, the hairs just stood up. Yeah. When she went to that note, forever love, I yeah. promise you. So we cut the track. And then she goes, oh, my God. I love that. I love that. The mod is so cool, Jenny. Can we do it again? I'm like, you mean cut the song? And she goes, no, mod again. I'm like. <laughs> you want to go up again, another half st- whole step? She's like, why not? Can we do it? And I'm like, well, the only place left is going to be into the solo. She's like, well, yeah. how would that go? And I said, well, we'd have to go out of the bridge. We'd have to go, you know. Nothing can change what is meant to be. Big roll. we mod again and the wow. guitar solo goes she's like well let's do that right yeah. well, Dan Huff played the most unbelievable guitar solo you've ever heard it was life. his moment right it I mean, was his had... moment because the whole record just soared like a journey yeah. record wow. it just took off right? right but we knew that that record went from a good song to a hit to a great song yeah because just of a couple of guys, arrangement yeah. ideas so your the answer to your question is I've always kind of thought like a producer of the studio even if I wasn't hired yeah. to produce and I think with the relatively mediocre chops that yeah. I feel I have compared to other really yeah. experienced guys like Steve Nathan and Matt Rawlings and these guys yeah. who are virtuosos uh, I bring this other thing to the table ideas and I'm not afraid to express them they're only ideas you don't have yeah. to use them but maybe if you do maybe it's a good thing wow. so for me to naturally progress into production seemed like the thing to do you know when i started yeah. black river that gave me a great vehicle because i could start producing artists and yeah. i was in full control there was nobody to tell me what i could and couldn't do yeah. and you know we made some great records on sarah darling and and jeff bates and uh do west and all these those are people you produced that yeah. i produced over wow, there that's amazing and, and you always you know, played the piano when you produced oh yeah. is that right yeah yeah well, i don't I've know i've seen you me. behind the piano instead of behind the desk i <laughs> I don't know, man. You know, I, I could hire piano players, but it's like by the time I kind of tell them what I'm hearing in my head, you could have done it yourself, I could have right? done it myself. So <laughs> don't think I have a thought about it. I would. It would be really fun to to bring someone like Gordon in to play yeah, on Gordon a record Moat. that I produced. Yeah. Oh, Gordon's so He great. had a great story about, uh, he said that he could tell, He's a, for those who don't know, Gordon Moat is a blind uh, Yeah. Uh, visually handicapped, I don't know what you'd call a blind piano yeah, blind player, piano but he's player. one of the session guys in Nashville. He's one of the top guys. And very, uh, very, very devoted Christian and all that. Such super, and super a guy. Freak of nature. Unbelievable. Yeah, unbelievable talent. player. He and is, by the way, he has perfect pitch. He has perfect pitch. And yeah. perfect tempo. 
Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And he could tell, he could tell, they were telling me a story that he could tell by listening to a record, like on the radio, yeah. like a record, a Reba record, a, you know, whatever, um, Alabama record. He could go, when he hear the piano, he can go, oh, I know what studio that was recorded in because of the sound of the oh, room. And he could tell you who the players were. And who the player was. Yeah. Oh, that's uh, that's Eddie Bears on the drums. Oh, that's yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, Glenn yeah. Worf on the bass guitar. Yeah, because all he had was his hearing. Because his and hearing he is could so hear, acute. Yes, he could hear in such detail that he could yeah. hear the size of the room, the, the feel, the sound. Yeah, those are the, the, the things you're up against. You know, that's why you can never look at yourself as like competing against other musicians. You, you just can't look at it that way because number one, <laughs> you'll probably kill yourself yeah. because the competition of this town is incredible. You have so many talented guys. And everybody a, has a thing that a they thing. do. A thing. And yeah. Gordon's got his thing, but I got my little thing, you know? Yeah. And it's like, if guys want my thing, they're not going to call Gordon. They're going to call me, and, you know, if I can't do it, they might try to someone else, or they sometimes they'll move the date, yeah, which is great, too. But, yeah, you know, you can't look at it that way. You just got to say, hey, I'm grateful just to get to work in this town at all. For me, this is going on 30 years now, and I never wow. thought I'd make it five, you know. So, yeah. you know, but, yeah, you know, respect what the other cats do and what they bring to the table. Matter of fact, don't just respect, learn from it. Yeah. I remember yeah. what we were doing, we were you were producing the Love Lives On thing that we did for the military. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Vinny Caliuta playing drums, and I'm just standing there watching. And you said the coolest thing, you know, Vinny was back there, and he said, uh, hey, Jimmy, uh, yo, what do you want me to knuckles. do on this part? Hey, Knuckles. Hey, Knuckles. What do you want to... Yeah, he calls you Knuckles. Yeah. Yo, Knuckles. And he would push his nose down. Yeah, like yeah. The Italian hey, guy. Like, hey, yeah, Jimmy, yeah. Knuckles. That's it, yeah. yeah. And he said, what do you want me to play on this part? And, and your, your answer was, uh, I don't know, Vinny. You're Vinny. You just do what Vinny. You're, that's why I called Vinny. That's, that's why I called exactly you. That's right. You just do, do Vinny. Do Vinny. Do Vinny. <laughs> I mean, that's... And, you know, again, that's something I learned from Tony Brown and David Malloy. It's like, surround yourself with the best players and you don't have to tell them what to do. They they got the instinct. They, they know, know what to do. And they know, again, honor thy song. They know what the song needs to be. And Vinny, God, he played the hell out of that track. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. but Vinny, and again, you know, I, I cut a thing with Vinny one time, uh, Bill Medley, he was one of the Righteous Brothers. And we were cutting this song called Lonely Avenue's old, uh, uh, old uh, Ray, Ray Charles song. And Ray did it, you know, Ray did it fast. Well, my hair is full of green and the sun won't ever shine through. He did it like yeah. that, you know. And the black girls are singing, ah, it's really cool, you know. And Bill goes, man, I don't want to do it that fast. I want to do it really slow. And we're all going, like, how slow? <laughs> and this is Dean Parks, wow. Eddie, uh, Vinnie Colliotta, me, and Joe Chimay. And uh, another uh, guitar player, uh, a legendary player, uh, I think his name, God, the guy plays on all the, the TV soundtrack yeah. stuff. He's incredible. I think I remember uh, you telling me this story where Vinny laid well, into that thing. Vinny laid into it, but but I had to start the tempo <laughs> ah. because we didn't want to cut it with a click again. Right. So I had to start it by myself and try to imagine where Vinny's pocket's going to be. And he wanted to do it this slow. Well, my head is full of wind, and the sun don't ever shine through. Well, how do you yeah. groove to that? Yeah, right. Keach? There's You're so much drummer. space in between. There's so much the space. So much, how do you there's groove? There's no subdivisions. There's no yeah. sun. I mean, if you... How do you yeah. do that, right? Vinny. Vinny. Found a way to... Not only did Vinny find a way to groove to that... When Vinny came in, he actually slowed it down a little bit more. Wow. Bow, bow, boom, boom, boom. And man, that track, yeah. 
I remember looking at the room and everybody in the room just went. <laughs> Vinny had that ability to do, to find the path sonically on the on, on his instrument that not only fits the the song but elevates the song to a place that I don't know, man. Uh, just some other drummers just would never. I don't know if it's a confidence thing. Yeah. Or, you know, I know that he's one of the greatest that's ever played. It's got to be confidence. But it's there's something else. His brain is just wired yeah. differently. And know? it's not just like, uh, and I tell my students this, it's not just all about these flashy notes that you could, no. you could do that. You could do that. But what about the simplest thing? You know, how do you do that well? Right. What's the lobe? What's the, yeah. what's like you said, it's sometimes it's not just the note you play. It's what you it's don't play. It's the interval yeah. Yeah. sometimes between the notes yes. that matters. And he has that ability to just... Space that just to the yeah. right place, you know. That Lonely Avenue track is a monster. I'm gonna have to look that up, dude. Oh Bill Medley. It's out of Bill Medley. Uh, it's called Damn Near Righteous, and it's like I think the second or third song on the record. And it's just, I mean, I'm sitting there just playing a whirly, and I've got. I actually told Vinny, I said, uh, I said, we got to cut this without a click, you know. And I said, Vinny, yo, Knuckles, where you at? I said, throw me a cigarette. He doesn't, <laughs> you don't smoke, Knuckles. I said, throw me a cigarette. So he throws me a cigarette. And I've got my sunglasses on, and I put the cigarette right here in my mouth. <laughs> it's dangling out of my mouth. Because I'm trying to put myself in the vision of like an old New Orleans Dr. John yeah, thing, right. right? And I start, I'm playing a, a, a whirly, and I'm just, so I'm just hitting one note. It's whirly, sir. And I'm just, have the I'm trying the with a cigarette yeah. dang to, to just try, i got my eyes closed. <laughs> I'm not even reading the chart. I'm just vibing off it. Boom, boom. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to find the tempo, and every time I'm going for downbeat, I'm trying to lag it. Yeah. Just because so I'm like, if Vinny hears me rushing, <laughs> I'm going to lose all respect from Vinny. He's going to say, Knuckles, what Knuckles, are you doing? What are you, doing? you get on top of me. He didn't. I just sat there. And, and all of a sudden, he starts singing, you know. Well, my head is full. And it just, and we did the track in one take, and it's just a monster. Wow. But man, it's just, you know, and again, Cheat, Keech, it, it was a learning experience, you know. It's like you're in your town and you're playing with these guys, and all of a sudden now you're out in Vegas or in LA and you're playing with that level of cat. Mm -hmm. And once again, you know, you better have enough of an ego to walk in that door and think you're even qualified to sit in the room with these guys. But another level to go, all right, I'm going to do this with no click track, yeah. with one of the greatest grooving drummers in the history of music. And I'm going to take a shot that I'm either going to sink yeah. miserably or, you know, they're going to like it. And again, it's just you and it's that piano oh, there you all go. by See? yourself it's in funny, that moment man. where you just have to take a leap I of faith. I never thought it that way. Yeah. That's, that's Every single you... time. Yeah. That's, that's true. Amazing. Well, man, I I cannot thank you enough for um, talking to me and uh, sitting here. And Always, brother. I love spilling you. Spilling our guts. We go back <laughs> and, you know, so we all have some great stories. And for me, it's great to share them. If for no other reason, just to inspire, you know, look, you know, you go and pick up Keyboard Magazine and they're full of all these guys that went to Berkeley and went to school and did all this stuff. And I think sometimes young kids and stuff who just started playing like I did probably get a little disillusioned and go, God, I, I can't afford Berkeley. I can't do that. Well, here I am, you know, played it on Living Testament, 15,000 records, yeah. I think, and oh my 30 God, number so ones and, you know, without ever taking a lesson, you know, really. You could do it. Yeah. You can do it. It's not what's, you know, really up in here. It's it's in your heart and your yeah. soul. And, you know, it's it's where the music comes from. And just, yeah. you know, take your handicap and, 
and use it for all that you got and just believe it yourself. You know, I wanted to, I mean, here's another observation that I, before we, before we close that I made on you is that you, all these moments where you just, the leap of faith that you and the piano, I think it all comes from the fact that you were in your family band like that with no oh. rehearsal ever. You never oh, had listen, that. You man, never had that. Oh, we got to work this out. You're absolutely right. My, my fearlessness of just winging it came from that. Came from that. Because we because, would do it yeah. every night. I mean, not only would we do it every night, but, you know, we would get up there and, and we would challenge, you know, people would say, hey, can you do, uh, you know, uh, cocaine? You know, the old, uh, yeah, we no, didn't I don't guitar. do that. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I don't do cocaine. You know, the old Eric Clapton yeah, song, da, 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 right? Da, so da, we da, would go, well, not only do we do it, but we do our own version. Oh, wow. And we we called it Rogaine. <laughs> and literally on Rogaine, the fly, Rogaine, we start Rogaine. making up the words right on the fly. You know, uh, if you uh, if you want to grow hair, but there ain't any there. Okay, <laughs> you know, and just whatever would cut. And we would literally throw around verses like Tony looked me. And oh, yeah. Tony, you know, and he'd make it up. You know, wow. uh, you know, and and so our ability to just ad lib became just so second nature that going into a studio and improvising it became again. Well, wow. is there any Nichols Brothers uh, records out there that we could listen there to? There are five out there. Uh, really? As a matter of fact, I just, uh, uh, we had the Nichols Brothers are making a hit, uh -huh. which is the Nichols Brothers in, in, a, in Jamestown, New York, dressed up as mobsters. Okay. And we all got machine guns, right? <laughs> but then if you flip the cover over, instead of a machine gun, Tony's holding his trumpet. Okay, you I know, Joey's so got cool, a trombone yeah. like that. And this. that would have been in the late 70s? That would have been like mid-80s. Mid-80s? Mid-80s. There are five albums. Uh, Making a Hit, Heart of the Country. And these are records I started writing on. So there's primitive songwriting in there. You can hear it start to make but that's it. that's you on piano. Say, me, all, your brothers. all my brothers, and a, and a guitar player from Nashville who married my sister, became my brother-in-law, named Amos Siren. Amos plays on it. He was our one guitar guy. But what I'm going to do is go to jimmynicholslive.com. Okay. And I'm going to start posting links where if you want the record, we're probably just going to give them away. We don't, yeah. we don't care to sell them. We just want people to, if they want to hear the Nichols Brothers. We still have a pretty large fan base, you know. So uh, as a matter of fact, I got, there's a couple hundred, maybe a thousand or so people coming this weekend. I'm going to be up yeah. in uh, Indian Lake doing a show with Paul Overstreet. and. Wow. And those guys and their people are going to come out and see me play. So it'll be fun. That's awesome. Can I ask a huge favor? Anything. Normally on my podcast, I close with this music that I've kind of yeah. composed with drums and some guitar and stuff like that. Oh, Could cool. you play us out? Could you play something really, just make it up or whatever, or something really nice and pretty? And uh, well, why don't I play you a piece of my 88 Keys, the song I wrote about my dad? Oh, God, that would be awesome. Can I play that? Yes. All right, here, let's move this over in front of the piano. Move, move the mic over here. That'll work oh, right God, too. That would be just incredible. All right, so here's the song. That got me in the national. Ready? All right. All right. I was all of eight. Here, my daddy passed away. I didn't really know him. She put him through hell He didn't have much To give a family of ten Just his love And the music he made But they 
Like your daddy, or so it would seem. 